Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello and welcome to the Columbia Calling podcast. I'm Emily Hart and this week I have the enormous privilege of introducing Columbia's leading astronomer, Dr. Paula Pinilla. Paula's work focuses on how planets are born, growing from just dust into planets ranging from vast and uninhabitable masses to planets just like the one that you and I live on. As well as having won a fellowship from NASA, earlier this year, Paula won one of the world's most prestigious awards, the New Horizons Prize, known as the Oscars of Science. Today, she'll be explaining to us a bit about planetary formation, the technology of seeing into outer space, and we'll be getting into the issue of diversity in the field of astronomy. We'll also be chatting about the knowledge and inspiration which arrives from outer space, how Paula's childhood in Bogota led her across the world and into the depths of the universe, and the incredible elements that we are all made of. Space dust. All that to come, but first, your headlines for this week. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own just complete the form on the columbia calling website that's www.columbiacalling.co or the bnb columbia tours website that's www.bnbcolumbia.com and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive colombian adventure so that's bnbcolumbia.com and latin news Com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors. I'm Grace Brennan, and these are your top stories for the week of October 23rd, 2023. The latest report from the Electoral Observation Mission shows that violence against political, social and communal leaders in the pre-electoral period rose by 37.7% this year, compared to 2019. 179 candidates have suffered some type of violence between October 29th, 2022 and September 29th, 2023. These include eight murders, 22 attacks, one kidnapping, eight cases of political violence against women and 140 threats. 
Violence was mostly committed against candidates for municipal councils across all political spectrums. Last Monday, Petro's government achieved a three-month ceasefire with the EMC, the largest FARC dissident group in Colombia. The agreement will last from October 17th to January 15th. The EMC has around 3,530 members and operates in areas known for regular confrontations with the Colombian army. The EMC did not sign the peace agreement in 2016. Petro has announced that a Colombian embassy will open in Rumala, Palestine. After meeting with the ambassador of Palestine on Thursday, the president also said that Colombia will send a plane with humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip, where it will wait for a humanitarian corridor to be opened. The foreign ministry has not specified a date nor details for either initiative. President Petro and leaders and foreign ministers of 11 countries in Latin America and the Caribbean met on Sunday to discuss the migration crisis in the region. The meeting, held in Chiapas, Mexico, resulted in an action plan for the development of employment, food self-sufficiency, education, environmental protection and energy security in Latin America. A document was also signed by leaders requesting the lifting of sanctions, blockades and terrorism lists against Venezuela and Cuba. The Institute of Hydrology, Meteorology and Environmental Studies has warned that a tropical cyclone could form over the Caribbean Sea in the coming days. Affected areas will be the south of the San Andres and Providencia archipelago and eventually in the Gulf of Odaba. Seawater level is expected to reach 2.5 metres in the maritime area over the next 48 hours. Colombian BMX racer Mariana Pajon has won her third Pan American gold medal. Following her first place in Lima in 2019 and Guadalajara in 2011, Pajon secured her third title in Santiago de Chile on Sunday. Those were your top stories for the week. Thanks for listening. Hi, Paula. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's so great to have you here. Thank you, Emily, for your invitation. So let's go back to the start. When did you first look up at the skies and think, that's what I want to do with my life? What captured your imagination? I think it was a mix of situations in my life. Um, first of all, I I have a brother who is five years older than me, and he always loved astronomy. So he used to buy like astronomy magazines and watch uh, astronomy TV shows, and I just was doing what he was doing. <laughs> so I was copying him, and I started to love uh, science. I think, um, and at the same time, at school. Um, I had a teacher who inspired me and actually believed on my capabilities, and in particular doing math. And I think at the same time, like this combination of the two were really, like gave me the dream that I want to be one day a scientist. Actually at school also, I had a, a group of friends who like astronomy, so we had like astronomy club. Um, and then when I started to to take physics class, I decided that I wanted to, to do physics in my life. Uh, yes, and I studied physics in Colombia. And culturally speaking, certainly when I was growing up, there was a sense that sciences, particularly physics actually, were sort of for boys. Did you come across any of these prejudices uh, when you were yeah. starting your career? Uh, that's a that's an interesting question because I actually study in a female school, so I never had that comparison. Like, ah, interesting. I was only competing with my 
girlfriends, and therefore I never felt inferior. I never thought boys are better than girls in math or physics, never. <laughs> and then I arrived <laughs> to university, and it was, I think those fears were not in my mind at all. And I just saw my, right. my female and male colleagues at the same level. So I, I think that was part of the reason why I didn't have this thing, that, dis, that distinction, but also uh, in my family, my mom was very hardworking. And when I had like math questions, she was the one who wanted to help me. She was oh, she is very good at math. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> yes, yeah. So I think those two, yes. Hmm. So you studied your master's in physics in Colombia. So I studied my bachelor and master's in physics. The topics that I, I, I decided to do research during those times were not related with astronomy. So it was really like a quantum leap <laughs> to a, something totally different. So when I finished my master, I thought like, oh, I, I remember this dream that I had when I was a kid, a teenager, that I wanted to do astronomy. And I said, why not to give it a try? Your studies have taken you to five different countries, three different continents since, and now London. And in terms of the the night skies, I've got to say, you know, not to bash on Bogota, but the night sky in Bogota, I can't imagine it alone inspiring a person to study astronomy, neither the London night sky, the the amount of cloud and light pollution is, is surely enough to make it something of a challenge or a leap of the imagination, maybe, to imagine everything that's out there. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, yeah, when I was a, a teenager, I bought with my savings a telescope and it was kind of frustrating that <laughs> it was hard to find a, a moment when I could see something. Um, but yes, I remember the first time I, I, I saw something through my telescope and it was really amazing. It was a moon of Jupiter. So it was wow. little, but it was enough to <laughs> inspire me. Yes. It is I don't know, I find it such an uncanny experience. And it feels very fresh at the moment because we had the solar eclipse earlier this month um, that I was staring straight at with a darkened piece of glass I bought off the street. We'll see if I'm blind in two days. Who knows? Every day I wake up wondering if that was the right decision, but I can still see, so we're good for now. Um, And you can really wander around all day, all week, without thinking too much about the vastness of space and the extraordinary number of giant objects on their paths circulating until you look and see with your own eyes just this extraordinary set of bodies moving around. I mean, the eclipse, I found it a profound experience. Yeah, I actually had the chance to see an eclipse in 2017 in the US. Oh, wow, that, that was a, a total eclipse was amazing not only just to see that the that the sun is covered and just suddenly everything is dark but the nature starts changing some minutes before that and the birds yeah. start singing and the insects start to move it's really extraordinary as i agree with you and this year not at all the culmination because i'm sure your career will only continue to grow but this enormous prize called the Oscars of Science by almost every news media, the New Horizons Prize. Um, And this was for your work on how planets form um, from dust, particularly in relation to something called dust traps. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about it, Um, starting, I think, probably best from the very basics. Yeah, sure. So... 
in the interstellar medium, which is basically the space in the universe uh, where we don't have, in quotes, nothing. There is actually dust and gas, and where this gas starts to uh, have chemical reactions to produce molecules, then we have a molecular cloud. And in these molecular clouds, the regions can become so dense that they collapse and they form a star. But the star is not born alone, it's born with a disk around. And this disk is the regions where planets are formed. And initially this disk is as the interstellar medium material, so there is a lot of gas, most of the material is gas. A little of the material, like 1% of the material is dust. And that dust is so small that we couldn't see it with our own eyes. But from that dust, planets form. This dust moves in the disk and collides and sticks and grow, grow to form like rocks. And then they continue growing until they form like asteroids, so kilometer-sized objects. And there was a problem in this process that it was well known for decades, is that when particles grow to rocks, they are expected to move very fast towards the star before any planet can form. And what we proposed in a paper in 2012 is that there are particular regions in this disk where uh, that movement stops and particles are trapped. And we predict that if this is the case, we will observe rings and gaps around the, the star. And one year later, one of the biggest telescopes to observe this kind of objects started to to take a data, which is ALMA, and ALMA saw these kind of structures around the disk. So it was a, a proof that our idea was correct for the first steps of planet formation. Wow, that must be so so trippy to have a theory proved so contundentemente correct. <laughs> by right. by seeing it with your own eyes. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's, uh, I remember when I saw the image, I couldn't believe it. We put in the, in the paper, like, predictions of what we would observe with Alma. And uh, one of my colleagues told me, oh, if this is real, you will become famous. <laughs> and I just laughed. <laughs> I thought, like, <laughs> I mean, I was a PhD student. <laughs> it's extraordinary. So we have stars forming from collapsed molecules and forming a sort of flat disk. And that disk is made of dust we can't even see with our eyes. And what's that dust made of? Yeah, that's a very good question because we don't really know. But Mm. um, we think that at least initially, uh, the early stages of the disk, it should be as the interstellar medium. So it should be composed of carbon, silicates, water, vacuum. Uh, so they are not totally um, compact, but they also porous. Um, mm. Yes, and depending where in the disk uh, these grains are, uh, for example, if they are very close to the star, the water will evaporate. So it will not be anymore right. in the shape of the solids. So does each planet form from a coincidental combination of different things or is the core of each planet the same? Well, that's a very interesting question and I think we don't know the answer, but I would say that it's probably a mix of both (laughs) because the, 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 the observations of exoplanets, which are planets outside our solar system, have shown that there are such a big diversity of exoplanets, like there are planets that are bigger than Jupiter, but they are closer than Mercury to our sun, for example. Planets that are between the size of Earth 
and Neptune, which we don't have in our solar system. So there is such a big diversity that we believe that these processes in the early stages of planet formation could be also very diverse and stochastic that leads to different cores and different compositions, yeah. architectures. It strikes me that the formation of a planet is a very unlikely event that's the product of a lot of circumstances coming together. It's interesting what you say about the planet forming to a certain extent and then through force of gravity just flying at the star that it's near to. Yeah, so in, in this, this, once these rocks that I was mentioning, they form, mm. uh, they, they, they can create very quickly an asteroid shape, so, but they need right. to keep colliding and growing to bigger, bigger objects to form the core of a planet or even terrestrial planets. And then if they are very massive, they will accrete gas and form a giant planet. So yes, there is a lot of events that have to occur to produce the planets that, as we know them, yeah. And presumably, not presumably, I'm going to ask this more as an open question because I study literature and simply do not know. Um, the, the elements of life on Earth were present in that first formation of the dust turning into the rock. Yes, indeed, yes. And we wow. actually try to also observe those elements uh, with telescopes like the James Webb Space Telescope to see what is present in the disk. And so, yes, all of these processes at yeah, the uh, beginning of the formation of the planet can influence the final composition and the possibility that the planet can host life. So we, you and I and everybody listening, are made of that dust. Correct, components yes. of it. <laughs> Correct. I, don't know. I think there is so a song mental. that says that, yes, <laughs> I think there is a song that says we are made of stardust. Um, uh, sounds like hippie nonsense, but it's apparently science. <laughs> and I science. love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A friend of mine who actually studied also telescopy at UCL told me that in the field of astrophysics, because of this thing, we're talking about this perfect time, place, circumstance collision that a lot of astronomers have great religious or spiritual faith because it's impossible to believe that all of this is random yes i think that's my personal experience mm. on the other hand i believe that there are also many scientists who want to explain everything and i think that's the aim of many of of them um but i think humans have a limit at some point of what they can understand and there's been an explosion in our ability to see these things, from what I understand, in 1995 was when we first were able to see planets beyond our own solar system. Um, and we now know of 5,000 planets. Um, it's a lot. So let's talk a little bit about the tech that's involved. Could you explain to, to our listeners a bit about how we're able to see that far? How do these telescopes work? Sure. So it's interesting. We don't see the planets directly. We uh -huh. actually see the effect of the planets on the starlight, for example, or on the gravity of that uh, star. So we infer from data that planets must be there. And wow. uh, depending on what method is used. There are different methods to infer that. So one is called the transiting method. So basically what is done is that we observe the star and then you could see that the light of the star has a, a, has decreased 
and that decrease uh, is uh, because we think there is a planet crossing in front of the star. Ah. And then you basically do that several times to confirm that, in fact, there is a planet surrounding the star. Orbiting. Orbiting, yes. Transiting. Wow, so you know the, the, the time length of the orbit as well. Correct. Measuring Correct. Yeah. shadows so, passing in front shadows, of the star. Yeah. Wow. So this is the transit method. Um, uh-huh. When we see the planet transiting, um, um, the, the depth of that decrease in the light can give us information about the size of, of the planet. Right? Because if the planet is big, it will basically cover more light. It will also tell us a little bit about the inclination of the orbit or the eccentricity of the orbit. Right. Uh, but that method is particularly a bias towards t- detecting giant planets around and very close to the star. So that's uh-huh. the, the method that was used in 95 to detect uh, the first exoplanet. There is other method that is, for example, to see the effect of the movement of the star. Uh, so because of gravity, the planet can pull the star and uh, you will see the, 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 the star moving back and forward. And that it, the method is called the radial velocity method. And that method is sensitive to the mass of the planet. So what we do as astronomers is actually to try to detect the planet in both methods because one gives us information about the size, the other one gives us information about the mass. Uh-huh. And the combination of that can give us information, as for example, the density of the planet. So these are the two main methods. And yes, the technology has basically <laughs> booms in the 90s to detect such uh, decreases in the light or uh, radio velocity changes. Um, with yeah, Hubble Space Telescope, Kepler was a big transiting uh, um, telescope that revolutionized exoplanets, uh, TESS, um, yeah, there is the VLT in, in Chile. VLT so. strikes me as so interesting because when we think of a telescope, we think of some version of the one that you would buy as a kid, right, that's got a small eye hole and a big lens. Um, but a VLT, or the one in Chile, and I think there's one in Australia as well, is, a, mm-hmm. is across a whole desert. It's a series of sensors laid out. Okay, so there is, yes, so the VLT is four telescopes, huh. and huh. there is the VLT interferometer that is eight little telescopes together. So the f- four more with the four big ones forming eight. So yeah, that's 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 striking as you said that you can actually combine the data that you obtain for all of the telescopes to get like the uh-huh. the data as if you will have a super mega telescope mm-hmm. which is even more striking uh, is that um the, the the one that i mentioned before alma is a radio telescope so it's basically radio antennas i don't know the ones that i used to see in colombia where i was little and just to uh have tv signal at home <laughs> um <laughs> these are basically antennas and these mm. are 12 meters in size, and there are 66 in the Atacama Desert. And you can move them to basically get whatever resolution of your telescope needs. And because you are observing a different wavelengths, you are not observing the optical. So these are no, you cannot see basically 
visualize the light that you are obtaining. This is radio wavelengths. So this is very cold universe. Yeah. With what you get from those antenna, you can create an, an image. image. Yeah. So it's sort of like a, a very complex eye. Yeah, exactly. It's like if you would have different glasses for your to see the universe. So if you put some glasses and you see the optical light, then you put another glass and you see the near infrared. Then you see another one, so you see the far infrared, and finally you see the millimeter. And actually many of those images that you see in in the press releases, they are a combination of all of this data. They are extraordinary, but there is no way that with our eyes that are sensitive to the optical, we could see that. That's really a combination of a lot of technology. Right. And is the technology continuing to change? Are you having to adapt or sort of integrate new types of telescopy in your career? Uh, yes. So this is changing continuously. Um, for example, as I mentioned before, the transiting method to detect exoplanets is sensitive to giant planets. Uh, if the giant planets are around a low mass star, it's easier because the star is small, so they, they cover how the light is covered. is easier to detect. But eventually what we want to do is to detect planets as Earth. And for that, we need to improve our technology. And that, that's something that we are moving towards with the future telescopes, to be able to detect Earth-type planets around stars like our sun. How quickly does that technology move? How often are there these leaps forward? Yeah, I think Kepler, that it was the telescope that really detected like thousands of planets by the transit method. Um, this was early 2000s. Um, and I think from that to detecting Earth-type planets will be maybe uh, in the 2040s. So it's around... It's pretty soon. Pretty for the Pretty soon, but maybe by the time I will be retired. <laughs> no, not that early. But I, I can see it now that many people who work for building these telescopes, they really see the products of those telescopes at the end of their career. So they work for very long. Uh, right, right. To really just see what they could reach at, at the very end mm. of their careers. Yeah. Is the aim of of seeing a planet the size of Earth because it's more likely to have particular conditions on it, or is it just to to get to see these smaller planets? Um, that's a good question because we don't because we are sensitive now to the giant planets um, mm. that are close to the star. We detect a lot of them, but we don't know exactly how often planets like Earth exist. So that's an open right. question. And it's true, also, depending on what is the distance to the star, these planets can host life. So, yes, it's like our goal to find something that is similar to, to Earth. Um, so a large planet, a giant planet too close to a star, it would be too hot? Too hot, or yeah. Too hot. Too hot um, yeah. And in terms of international study, what is the landscape like? It seems there's more... I mean, your career has taken you to bits of Europe, to North America. Are there particular global centres to this kind of study, or has it become something really international? This is all of those are international efforts. Um, uh, yes, so telescopes like uh, currently like uh, ALMA is a combination of efforts from 
US, Canada, Chile, Europe, Japan, and most of the big uh, space missions are also a mix of yeah of efforts. JWST that I was also mentioning is from NASA and ESA, so mostly Europe and the US. So yes, we, this is a very collaborative field. So the old sort of James Bond days of Russia versus the US sort of racing to see planets and get places, they're, they're gone. I think so, yeah. <laughs> I think so. Maybe there is more about, in that sense, maybe the, the competition is more about, the, again, like the moon and Mars, maybe. Um, Mars missions, more. Okay. I think that the competition is still there. Like recently there was a, a space mission to the moon from India that reached a place that has not was never reached before. Um, I understand that the spacecraft is now... So it, it was a robot spacecraft, so I think it's lost and they haven't recovered the, the data. But it's, it, things like that is yeah. still like a very interesting. I think there is a lot of competition to show what is the particular technology that countries are developing for um, solar system uh, exploration. Yeah. What's the point, I suppose, is my question. Why Why are they focused? Why is the competition focused around those areas and not, uh, let's say, your field? Or, you know, what, what is it about these close-ranging places that, that inspires this international yeah. competition? I, I, yeah, I think they, well, I think this is also to show the technology that we have to reach uh, mm. places that have not been reached before. Um, but on the other hand, it's also scientific, it's very interesting. Uh, like, all the robot missions to Mars are uh, very important to understand if Mars ever had water, for example, and the right. kind of, and what is different from the Earth, uh, its composition, and the Moon had an important uh, role for the uh, water delivery to the to the Earth, so to understand also mm. its composition is, um, yeah, it's fundamental. I think there are many important questions there, of course. Yeah, I suppose my my major concern is nutters like Elon Musk who think that we can all move there once we've destroyed the Earth. That um, that's and, impossible. <laughs> but I'm glad to hear that you think that we've only got this planet <laughs> and that we should therefore maybe look after it. <laughs> yes, true. Yes. Um, so how has the field opened up back here in Colombia over the course of your career? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's also an interesting question because when I left Colombia, I never did astronomy before, um, mm. uh, and I yeah I didn't have contact with any professor who was doing astronomy. Um, but then when actually I was living in the US, I was invited to give a talk in a, a meeting that happens I think every year or two uh, in Colombia for astronomers, it's called COCOA. For me, it was eye-opening to see the efforts of many many astronomers, um, professors trying to do good research in their universities. And yeah, many of them are actually young people that have uh, have done their PhDs and postdocs uh, outside Colombia and decided to come back mm -hmm. and bring that knowledge. And that's very valuable. And I think it's, uh, it's growing thanks to many 
young people coming back. And in the various places that you've worked all across the world, um, how diverse is the field of astronomy in terms of gender and, and background? Very international. So, for example, when I started to do my PhD, I think we were like around 12 people in Germany and probably one was German and the other, oh, wow. the other 11, we were all international. And it was a mix of people from Iran, from Poland, from Sweden. So it was really, really oh, fascinating. Very fascinating, yes. So I think in the level of the PhD is very diverse. Um, in terms of gender, there has been a huge uh, leap to improve it. So I think at the moment in most universities we have around 30 to 40 percent women in PhDs. So it's mm. a really good number. Um, yeah. And I think that diversity is very valuable in science because when you have a question and you have different backgrounds, people can see solutions in different ways. Do you think there's a, a particular uh, perspective that you bring from Colombia to this field? Yes, I think so. I think uh, the, my positive mind, <laughs> I believe in that things are always positive. Maybe it's just like a dream, a dreamer mind. Um, I think that's from my Colombian background. <laughs> Aside from your award-winning research, there's an amazing book that you've collaborated with um, called Mothers in Astronomy. Yes, um, yeah, that's right. So... Uh, I became a mother when I was doing my second postdoc in Tucson, in Arizona. And uh, I always thought like, oh yes, being a parent in science is difficult, but once you are one, <laughs> you realize oh, that that's really difficult. <laughs> and it's because, I mean, the field is always moving very fast. Um, there are papers appearing every day, and when I'm saying Every day is everything. It's not one paper. It's, sometimes it's 10 papers a day. So the field is wow. moving extremely fast. And yeah, as, when you're a parent, you need to slow down your life no matter what you are working on. And if <laughs> if, if the field is moving that fast and you, you need to slow down, you feel always behind. Uh, in particular, if I think if you're a mother, because uh, we are the ones mostly take the parental leave, um, According to studies, and also according to studies, they have shown that mothers actually um, publish less, go less to conferences, have less citations. Mm. So there is a huge impact of motherhood in, in female scientists. And when I realized that, I thought, like, okay, this has to get some awareness. <laughs> so I collaborated with another Colombian astronomer to do this project. Uh, and she also had a little baby by, by by then. And what it was amazing when she came to me and we thought we talk about this is that we knew few mothers in astronomy. Like we know a lot of scientists, but the ones that we could count that were mothers were very few, like less than five or, or eight. Yeah, we started small, like asking those mothers um, to answer the questions and if they knew other mothers who could 
answered those questions and this grew and we collected 75 responses. Our goal was to bring awareness, but also to be an inspiration for next generations that this is possible. Most of us had the common feeling that, that the field is not very friendly for mothers. Policies should change. Uh, also, the way we evaluate people, it should not only be numbers of papers or number of talks or number of citations, because as I said before, mothers are basically punished. But on the other hand, there was in all of these answers a very positive effect that motherhood had in our careers because it helped us to be more uh, productive, more practical, helping with managing people with different backgrounds and being more open-minded. It, it feels like a fascinating combination, the, the immediacy of motherhood and the rapidness with which it all happens, you know, and then your work, which takes place in deep time and you're watching things that happened millions, billions of years ago. How, how do you unite these two time frames in, in terms <laughs> of your life? That's true. I, that reminds me one of the answers of a mom who says um, that planets and stars can always wait, but your children cannot. And I think that's, <laughs> that's totally true. I think um, the universe will stay there. And even if the field moves very fast, I think the questions will be there when you come back. Um, and your curiosity will quickly catch up with that. And you don't want to miss the amazing time with your children. Actually, that's something I, I'm interested to ask I, I roughly, I don't have any, but I roughly know how long a child takes to, to grow, to form, to become an adult. How long does a planet take? <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's an, that's a very nice uh, comparison. <laughs> <laughs> so a planet needs around one million years to form, roughly. That is more, um, more than a child for any listeners. <laughs> that's aware. much more than a child. <laughs> but, and that's to form so to become a planet uh, so what I wow. actually do is more like looking at the embryos of that planet oh, uh, okay. so uh, let's say that I <laughs> in that sense parenthood is similar to, to <laughs> what I'm doing <laughs> looking at like the formation and also looking how basically conditions uh, the mothers the parents which are in these <laughs> stars can affect the condition the proper of those planets yeah so what's next for your research what what are you focused on right now and what's coming up so there is a lot of active research at the moment to understand uh, what is creating these structures and we try to do this uh, by combining models with observations of different telescopes so that's one area and the other area is more towards understanding um, the material that is around this dust um and that which planets can form in order to have certain types of atmospheres in the planet, for example. So I'm, I'm trying to grow in those two directions. And spending all day thinking about the skies and studying these things in these, in these incredibly scientific terms, do you still ever just look up at the moon and, and think, holy shit, that's amazing? Do you still have that sense of excitement? <laughs> yes, all the time, I think. <laughs> yes, I think all the time. Um, with little and big things, a couple of years after my PhD, I went for an observation. It was no moon, and the skies were clear, and I could see the Milky Way, and I thought, wow, this is the reason why I'm an astronomer. I felt fulfilled, <laughs> like everything had reason in my life to be there. Wow. But also when I just see the skies, and when my kids, 
just point and say, oh, la, la luna, <laughs> the, the moon. I, I'm excited about it. Like, I, I'm excited to say, yes, the, yeah, it's a moon and it's around us. And yes, we are just one planet of eight in our solar system. And they are incredibly far away, some of these things that, that we're talking about. But how does your understanding of what's so far out there enrich and influence your life down here? The thought that we just discussed before, that we are all made of startups made me realize that uh, we are at the end all made of the same thing we are all humans we are all equal no matter what no matter if there are borders or colors at the end we are all equal and we should take care of this planet because there is no second one where we can live <laughs> we come from the same thing and this planet is so precious it's something that the astronomy and every day my research helped me to That strikes me as just a beautiful place to stop. Thank you so much, Paula. I am just so inspired by your work and your conclusions, and it's been an absolute privilege to speak to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Emily, for your invitation. The Columbia Calling podcast is sponsored by Latin News, a leading source of political and economic analysis on Latin America and the Caribbean since 1967. Their flagship publication, the Latin American Weekly Report, provides a behind-the-scenes briefing on all the week's key developments throughout the region. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at latinnews.com. We are also sponsored by... BNB Columbia Tours, which is a leading tour operator providing a wonderful range of exclusive small group shared tours for those over 50, along with customizable private tours to both popular and off-the-map destinations throughout this beautiful and diverse country. If you're interested in experiencing one of their unforgettable journeys through Colombia, be it a shared tour with like-minded travelers or creating a unique private package of your own, just complete the form on the Columbia Calling website, that's www.columbiacalling.co, or the BNB Columbia Tours website, that's www.bnbcolumbia.com, and they'll be in touch within 24 hours to answer all of your questions and to start the planning of your exclusive Colombian adventure. So that's bnbcolumbia.com and latinnews.com. Thank you for supporting our sponsors.